And I don't know about you, but after chapter 13, Revelation 14 is like a breath of fresh air. Uh, chapter 13, we were introduced to the bad guys, if you would, of the book of Revelation. We saw uh, the Satan dragon once again. We were introduced to the Antichrist, this beast rising up out of the sea, and also the false prophet, this beast rising up from earth. We're still in the middle of this parenthetical statement, in the middle of Revelation. This parenthesis, this index, if you would, right, of all the different main characters throughout the book. So if chapter 13 showed us the bad guys, chapter 14 shows us the good guys, if you would. So it's going to start off with the lamb. The lamb we know is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, seeing him, declared Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We also will be introduced to the 144,000, these special men that are Jews, and they, be, they come to Christ during the Great Tribulation, and they're unleashed on the world, giving a special seal by the Lord. And if you would, they are 144,000 Pauls sent all over Israel, just preaching the gospel to all mankind. We'll also see the tribulation believers. These tribulation believers, many of them will be martyred for their faith. We'll see three angels, and we won't have time, but there's also two sickles at the end of the chapter. I was talking uh, with a pastor yesterday. He's like, hey, what are you teaching? I was like, I'm teaching on three angels and two sickles. He's like, three angels and a popsicle? Is that, is that, the, is that the name, the title of the message? But not the case. One last thing that we'll see is, in a sense, a tale of two cities. We'll see Mount Zion, which is both a physical place in Israel and also a spiritual place where Jesus will rule and reign. And those of us who are with him will be there with him and worship with him there. Versus a spiritual city of Babylon, where people buy into in their pride and their foolishness and their hatred towards God and their love of self and their love of evil. And this great city, Babylon, will be destroyed once and for all during the Great Tribulation. Another great way to look at it is, right, you are what you eat. You are what you eat, and what are you feeding on? Are you feeding on the bread of life? Are you feeding on the water, this eternal water that we can only have from Jesus Christ that leaves us never thirsting again? Or are we feeding on, are we drinking the wine of the wrath of fornication? So that's just to give you an idea before we dive in here. So Revelation chapter 14, we'll read verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Throughout chapter 14, we're going to be introduced to different visions. We're going to see over and over again that John looks and behold, he sees a new vision. There's also times where John is going to hear certain things. So we're going to be shown visions and John hearing different voices. But it tells us he looked and behold. So again, there's a new scene here and he looks and he sees the lamb. It's the lamb. It's Jesus Christ here standing on Mount Zion and with him are 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So here we see Jesus. He's left his place in the midst of the throne room of God. And here he is with the 144,000. Now people, they go back and forth. This Mount Zion, is it the spiritual Mount Zion or the physical Mount Zion? We're not exactly sure. It would seem like it's the spiritual one. But here what we have is kind of like a winner's circle 
before God pours out his final wrath on the earth. We know that the last time we saw the 144,000, it was in Revelation chapter 7. And in Revelation 13, verse 7, we saw that the Antichrist was given authority to make war with the saints. And he had authority over every tribe, every tongue, and over every nation to overcome them and to make war with them. I don't think it's anybody's favorite Bible verse, right? I don't think anybody has a Revelation 13, 7 tattoo on them, right? That the enemy, the Antichrist, is going to have power to make war with the saints, to overcome them, and to have authority over them. So did the Antichrist absolutely destroy them? Right? Absolutely not. This isn't necessarily the saints, but this is the 144,000, and we see that they're all still there. In Revelation 7, verse 4, we see that there's 144,000. There's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and here there's the 144,000. So what we can know about this lamb, about Jesus Christ, is he doesn't lose one of them, right? It's not like, hey, I start off with 144,000, and Father, here we are with the 140, right? We only lost 4,000 of them. Just again, the power of our God, the victory of Jesus Christ. These 144,000, they still had to go through the midst of the trials and tribulations within the great tribulation, but they're taken before the final judgment is poured out. Doesn't tell us why, doesn't tell us how. A.R. Fawcett, he says, just as Noah and Lot were taken seasonably out of the judgment, but exposed to the trial to the last moment. So those who shall reign with Christ shall first suffer with him, being delivered out of the judgment, but not out of the trials. Again, we have to keep this in mind. We have to take ownership of this. In this world, we are promised trial. We are promised tribulation, but Jesus has taken our judgment ahead of time. So here, the 144,000, they're standing in victory with Jesus Christ. They went through trial, they went through victory, but they don't have to take the judgment of God. A couple of different Old Testament scriptures from the different prophets on this Mount Zion. You can just write these down. Micah chapter 4 verse 7 tells us that the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and even forever. In Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 verse 32, it says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. Isaiah chapter 24 verse 23, it tells us, Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And finally, Obadiah Chapter 1, verse 17, it tells us, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. Again, there's going to be deliverance, and there's going to be holiness. One last thing here in verse 1. We see that what they have written on their foreheads, this seal is the name of the Father of the Lamb of God. This is their identity. And it's only those who belong to God they will be the ones to reign with him for all of eternity. You see, we have to be careful because even as believers, we can create our own sub-identities. We can create our own sub-groups, right? Not talking about subs. I know lunch is coming quickly, right? But talking about different groups that we identify ourselves with and at times even more than our identity in Jesus Christ. The only identity that really matters is if we identify with Jesus Christ in his death. Because if we identify with Jesus Christ in his death, then we will identify with him in his resurrection and in his authority for all of eternity. Again, our life here, it's not about making disciples of Calvary Chapel. That's not what it's about. It's not making disciples of King James Version or this political party or that little political party. We need to make sure that our chief identity is in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he says, If you were to go to heaven's gate and ask if they had any Baptists there, the angel would only look at you and not answer you. 
If you were to ask if there were any Wesleyans there or any members of the established church, he would say nothing of the sort. But if you were to ask him whether they had any Christians, aye, he would say, in abundance of them. They are all one now, all called by one name. The old brand has been obliterated, and now they have not the name of this man or the other. They have the name of God, even their father, stamped on their brow. Again, friend, what is your chief identity? Is it in Jesus Christ? Again, my name is not what's going to get you to heaven. Any pastor's name, that's not what's going to get you to heaven. It's only identifying in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, now he hears, right? He saw one thing, now he hears another thing. He says, he heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters. And like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. We've seen this voice mentioned in Revelation already. We saw it in Revelation chapter 1 verse 15. We saw it in Revelation chapter 4 verse 5. Once speaking of Jesus Christ and another time speaking of God the Father. And this voice like a voice of many waters and a voice like loud thunder. It sort of speaks to us about the power of our God. I don't know if any of you have ever been near uh, Niagara Falls. Anybody been near Niagara Falls, right? You're there at the edge and you hear the roaring of the water. I don't know if you've ever been at the beach when there's a storm and you just hear the wind and the waves crashing. You see this voice of many waters, this voice of loud thunder. It's a loud, hushing, and calming voice. It's not a loud screaming voice. It's not a voice shrieking for attention, right? We know babies, they have loud voices sometimes. That's not what it's like at all. It is a voice that shows its power and its peace all at the same time. When you're there next to a body of water and it's making all this noise, you know you can't overpower it. You know your voice can't match it, but it almost relaxes you. It it calms you. In fact, there are probably some of you that you went to sleep last night with a white noise machine, right? Maybe you had the rainforest, the waves, the ocean, right? This, that, or the third, and it relaxes you. And it just speaks to the power of our God. He's not out there just calling for attention. He is the voice, like many waters, and a voice of loud thunder. Next, we hear the sound of harpists playing their harps. This kind of always makes me laugh, especially in the King James Version. It's like harpists harping their harps. Sounds like Dr. Seuss grabbed some ideas here from uh, Revelation 14. But back in Revelation 5, verse 8 and 9, we see the 24 elders, they fall before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So it seems as if the 24 elders are here playing their stringed instruments, joining the 144,000 in their songs. And we have to be careful because if we're honest, when we hear about playing harps in heaven, I don't know how many people get excited about that, right? I know how many people pray their whole life that they could get really good at the harp when they grow up, right? But we need to realize this is what heaven's about. It's about worshiping the Lord. And there in heaven, we'll realize what ears were really meant for, what eyes were really meant to see, what taste buds were really meant to taste. And when our excitement continues to need to be in Jesus Christ. In verse 3, it tells us they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And in heaven, there are so many different songs. We just read about the song in Revelation 5-9. It's all of the redeemed crying out, speaking about Jesus Christ and how he's saved us. In the book of Psalms, it tells us six different times to sing a new song. And the Lord will bless us with specific songs that we may sing. And these songs we sing not because we've learned them in heaven, but we've learned them here on earth. The songs that we sing will take us back to the short time that we've spent on earth and will lead us to worshiping God for all of eternity. You see, the way we live this life, 
the difficulties in this life, the blessings of Jesus Christ proving himself faithful over and over and over again in this life have eternal consequence. Music is a powerful thing. I don't know if any of you realize how powerful music is. I never uh, forget when Levi was little, he was still on Amanda's lap, she was studying music, she was playing some chords, and she goes to a certain key, it's right, sadder music, angry music, and right away his little eyebrows get angry, right? And he's throwing, nothing's changed, it's just the music, the notes. And music, it's touched each of us in different ways, right? For many people, they have a bad breakup, and now they have a favorite new song, Right? And it's always things being a friend and you're riding in the car with them and they have their breakup song going on and you're just sort of sitting there, right? I can't really identify with this right now, right? My life is good. But songs, we identify with them because of what we're going through, because of what we've been through. And even there in heaven, the 144,000, they will have their own song because of what they've been through how the Lord saved them, how the Lord used them during the great tribulation, and they will have their own song. We will have our own song as well. And again, just the joy and blessing of being able to worship the Lord. Can I challenge you? How do you worship? Do you worship at all? Do you think that worship is like sort of the previews before the movie? It's like the trailer, right? And so you could get there, you could get in there late. You hope it's a beach scene, right? So it's bright enough so you could get into the theater, right? Is that your mindset? Or do you come early because you want to worship the Lord? You want to cry out to Him? Do you sing? Do you not sing? Again, has the Word of God, has it had any impact on your life? Because we all have certain songs that we've sung, right? Whether it's speaking about an elderly Hispanic lady that left her life in her old country and came and lived here now. And then we think about our grandmothers, our moms, and all they went through and how those songs, they impact us. We're moved to tears with them. Does God's music have any impact on our life or on our, our emotions? It should. It definitely should. We shouldn't run our life based on emotions, but God's word, the music of heaven, should affect our emotions. In verse 4, it tells us of these 144,000 that they were not defiled with women. They're virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men being First fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Many cults, many false religions, they say that they are the 144,000 until they have more than 144,000 people in their group, right? And then now they're no longer the 144,000. Biblically, these are the same people in Revelation 7. It's these Paul-like believers, Jewish people that have come to faith in Christ during the Great Tribulation. Revelation 7 told us that there were 12,000 of them from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're young Jewish men who are virgins that give their entire life to focus on the preaching of the gospel and serving the Lamb of God. It tells us that they are the beginnings of the harvest, like the first fruits. Later on, at the end of this chapter, we'll see the rest of the harvest being taken and being separated. I love at the end of verse 5, it tells us that they were without fault before the throne of God. And the way they're without fault before the throne of God, it's the only way and the same way that we can be without fault before the throne of God. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at Ephesians 5, and then right afterwards we'll look at Colossians chapter 1. But there in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us really the only way that we can stand faultless before the throne of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. Paul here, he's speaking about marriage, he's speaking about husbands and wives, but peppered all throughout this, we see the power of Jesus Christ and his love for the church. There in Ephesians 5, verse 24, it tells us, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word 
that he might present her to himself a glorious church without having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So again, within marriage, a husband should be edifying his wife and leading her to more and more holiness and not the opposite. But here we see within Jesus Christ and the church that he gives his life to sanctify the church, to wash her with the water of the word, that the church, that we would be presented to him without having spot or wrinkle, that we would be holy and without blemish. The only way we can stand faultless before the throne of God is to be in Christ Jesus, having that identity in him once again. If you go to a couple pages to the right in your Bible, in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 21, Paul once again here just talks to us about the power of Jesus Christ and how it's the only way we can stand faultless before the throne of God. It tells us in chapter 1 verse 21, And you who were once alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, we shouldn't take the death of Jesus Christ lightly. It's through his death that we're reconciled. It's through his death and resurrection that we're able to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. So the next time we're tempted with sin, should we look at it lightly? No, we should be mindful of the death of Jesus Christ each time temptation comes knocking on our door. We should consider how his body went through death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the throne of God. Now we go to verse 6 and we see the first of these three angels that have specific messages to the entire globe to the whole world. We'll read through it, verse 6 through verse 9. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give, him, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we have three different angels and specific messages given to each of them. And what this reveals to us is the way a gracious and merciful God will pour out judgment and wrath it's just with more grace and mercy, right? This first angel comes and preaches the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. The grace and mercy of God, it continues day in and day out. And it's important to take a step back in our lives and look at our life's work and see how much grace and mercy God has bestowed on us. Do you realize how much grace and mercy God has given you? Right, you make that promise, God, I promise I'll never do this again. Then a day later, a week later, a month later, God, this time I'm serious, I'll never do this again, right? Does he strike us dead? Does he mortally wound us? Does he make us lose our leg or anything like that, right? The grace and mercy of our Lord. 
But his grace and mercy is going to continue each day until his judgment is over. And God will have a drastic shift in the way he does things during the great tribulation. Because we see this angel preaching the everlasting gospel. Who is responsible today to preach the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth? It's us. Even if you didn't say us, it's us. It's everyone who's saved. That's our job. That's our role. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So if you have pets, you should be sharing the gospel with them, right? Every creature, you should be preaching the gospel. Maybe you practice with your cat or your dog, right? Your bearded dragon, whatever the case may be. But each of us who are a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's our job to be preaching the gospel. It's not just Billy Graham or Greg Laurie. It's not just Pastor Zach or any of the other pastors. It's every single disciple of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20, Jesus, he tells them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I think we can take directly from Scripture that if we are not preaching the gospel, if we are not making disciples, we are being disobedient to the Lord. When was the last time you shared the gospel? When was the last time you shared of what Jesus Christ has done in you? How much grace and mercy like we just talked about. It's one of the commandments that Jesus gives to us. In Acts chapter 10, we have a perfect interaction here because we have an unbeliever who's hungry and thirsty for the Lord. We have an angel and we have a believer that doesn't want to share the gospel with specific types of people, right? Sound familiar? It's like most of our lives, if we're honest, right? In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, it tells us of a Gentile, of a man who was part of the Italian regiment. He's a soldier, and his name is Cornelius. tells us he's a devout man. He feared God. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. It's interesting because he's not saved yet, and he has a fear for the Lord. He gives alms to the people And he prays to God always. I think many of us can be convicted. Are we fearing God? Are we helping the poor and needy? Are we giving? Are we giving people generously? And are we praying to God always? But in the midst of this, his desire to hear from God, his desire to follow and seek God, an angel comes to him and calls him Cornelius. And does the angel stop here and preach the gospel to him? No, the angel says, hey, Send some servants and go and get Peter, right? That's what the angel does. You see, the angels, they don't preach or share the gospel right now. Right now, that is our job. And Peter didn't want to do it. Peter kept telling God, Gentiles are unclean. I can't touch unclean things, right? He'd have to come to him in visions. He'd have to take him to Simon the Tanner's house. And oftentimes, we are not willing to go and preach the gospel kind of like Peter, We're too shameful. We're saying we don't want to talk to that person. What if they beat me up? What if they spit in my food at the restaurant? Right? We come up with all of this crazy amount of ideas and why we shouldn't share the gospel. But Peter was blessed because of it. Cornelius and his whole house was saved because of it. And oftentimes we are the ones that are selling ourselves short. We're missing out on what God wants to do in us and through us by being obedient and taking those steps of faith. And if we don't take those steps of faith, you're going to miss out. We should be sharing the gospel. We should be making disciples. What we see here in Revelation 14 is just the incredible grace and mercy of God in the midst of wrath and judgment. It's just like Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, in wrath, remember your mercy. This one angel preaches the gospel to every single dialect, and yet he does it with one loud voice. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20, we see a lot of similarities to what the angel says after he shares the gospel with him. Romans chapter 1 verse 20, it tells us, For since the creation of the world... 
His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. This angel preaches the gospel to the whole world, continuing that theme that every unrighteous person is without excuse. See, if we're honest, most of us, we didn't come to salvation the first time we heard the gospel. Some of you, some of you guys are quick learners, right? Me, not so much, right? And for some of us, it's the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time. We're eating dirt, and then finally we humble ourselves and we cry out to the Lord. But all of mankind will be without excuse, even during the Great Tribulation. Notice now in verse 7 what the angel says back in Revelation chapter 14. He preaches the gospel to them, and then he says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Again, you parallel that with Romans 1.20, that although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Because Romans 1.20 tells us that if you just look outside, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? If you just look outside, you cannot argue that there is a God and a Creator. But we'll look at the order of these things in verse 7. The first thing he tells them, first thing God's word is telling us is fear God. Fear God. Do you fear God in your life, right? Is that being afraid he's going to throw a lightning bolt at me, right? Is that what it's all about? No. A couple of Proverbs here. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, you can just write these down, gives us an idea of what the fear of God is. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of knowledge, but the fear of the Lord is also the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, it tells us that the fear of the Lord prolongs days. You want to live a long life? It's not doing keto or doing juices, right? It's having the fear of the Lord. That's how you prolong your days, having a fear of God. Proverbs 14, verse 26 and 27, it tells us, In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Again, the power of us being able to have the fear of the Lord. That there's strong confidence there. Many people, right, they're introverts or they're scared. They have no confidence. They're asking, how can I grow in self-confidence? Don't grow in self-confidence. What we should be growing in is confidence in the Lord. And if we have the fear of the Lord in our lives, we're going to have a stronger confidence than our heart, which is deceitful and wicked above everything else, right? We need to have this strong confidence in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. You want to have a fountain of life? It's by growing in the fear of the Lord. And it's so powerful that verse 27 tells us that it's powerful enough to turn one away from the snares of death. The different traps that Satan lays for us, the different traps of death, if we have the fear of the Lord, it will turn us away from those sins and weights which so easily ensnare us. The definition of the fear of the Lord, it's reverence, honor, and to show deep respect. Do you have an honor for the Lord? Do you have deep respect for God? It's to be courteous with regard for another's wishes. right? And that's why the fear of the Lord, it, it's intermingled with a love for God. If you have a true love for God, you're going to have the fear of God. You can't love God unless you have the fear of the Lord. The biblical definition for the fear of the Lord or for the fear of God in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, it tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. And if we're honest, we're pretty good at hating evil when someone else is doing the evil, right? Someone else is prideful, someone else is arrogant. We hate that in an instant. But if we're prideful, if we're arrogant, if we have evil oozing out of us, I got to be gracious, man. Got to show mercy. Got to be kind. We need to hate that evil within us. How about the different idols in our life? Our, our music, our movies, our poetry, our kids, our hobbies, when there's evil oozing out of it, is the hatred still there? Or do we turn a blind eye because it's our idol? I love this thing. I care about this thing. So I'm not going to hate the evil in it so much, right? If you really watch the whole thing, the plots are good, right? Or do we hate it? A.R. Falsetti says, fearing God is the forerunner to embracing the love of God manifested in the gospel. Repentance accompanies faith. Again, the fear of God, it's the forerunner. It's what leads us to embrace the love of God that we find in the gospel. Right? Husbands here, wives here. What would you think if your spouse tells you, you know, honey, I just have so much love I'm just filled with so much love. I think I could love you and another husband at the same time. I think it will be, I just have so much love in me. I think I could have two husbands, right? And everything will be great. I don't think any husband will be down for that, right? None of us will be down for that because there needs to be a certain fear and respect and love to go along with the true love. And it's the same with our relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't just say, God, I love you, but we have no respect for the Lord. God, I love you, but I'm not going to honor you in my actions. God, I love you, but my conduct's not going to change because I don't have any respect for you. Again, these two things need to go one with the other. We need to fear him, and as we fear him, we're going to love him more and more. I think we've all been there, right? Courteous with regard for another's wishes. When you love someone, when you honor them, when you respect them, sometimes you do things that in your mind are downright humiliating, right? You have kids, you have a spouse, right? Honey, you want to go with me to the mall? Sure, right? I'd love nothing more than to just look at clothes for the next three hours, honey. That's exactly what I want to do. But if you love them, if you show respect towards them, you'll be courteous with their wishes. And as we go through the word of God, if we really honor him, if we really respect him, we're going to follow his wishes. Do we fear God? The next thing is to give glory to him within the context of revelation here this angel is warning the world to not give glory to the antichrist give glory to the true to the real deal to jesus christ give glory to the one and true savior of humanity that's the context of what's going on here. As the Antichrist is rising, as he's been healed from that wound, as the false prophet is hyping him up, as they're putting this image out there, as the whole world is buying into this snowball of a reality, he's the only one that can save us. He's the only one that can give us a hope and a future. An angel will be warning mankind, don't give glory to this man. Give glory to the Son of Man. Give glory to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. There's been so much grace. There's been so much mercy. But the final day is about to arrive. It's the final day when God will pour out his wrath and his final judgment on those who worship the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast. And if there's ever a topic that puts everyone on edge... If there's a topic that makes everyone feel uncomfortable, right? You could think of politics. You always want to have a spicy Thanksgiving. You just bring politics, right? Right there in the middle of the meal. You could start talking about religion. I think the other one is when a wife asks a husband, does this outfit make me look fat, right? Right away, everybody's on edge. It's a lose-lose situation there, right? But the last one that will definitely get you into trouble is talking to someone about the judgment of God. Right away, people hate that. They can't stand that. Who are you to tell me what God is going to judge? Who are you to tell me? Who are you to judge me? I always feel like you're judging me, right? This is the world we live in. And judgment really isn't that bad of a thing. Each and every one of us do it all throughout the day. 
Judgment is just the process of forming an opinion after careful consideration by examining and comparing. Each of us, we form opinions on things. We go to a restaurant, you form an opinion on the restaurant. How cheap was it? What were the portions like? How was the service, right? Each of us, we form opinions on things. We form opinions, is it too cold in here? Is it too hot in here, right? Is it too loud? Is it too quiet? How's this? How's that? We judge things all day long. But the idea that one day God is going to judge every single human being, our flesh hates that. And it's something that's so natural. And God, I wrote down here three ways that God is going to judge us. Three ways God, he's going to pour out his judgment on all the world. The first one is salvation. God is going to judge you based on your salvation. Bow now or bow later. What is your salvation attached to? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, Paul says here, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, he's going to judge each and every one of us. Did you bow the knee to Jesus Christ before you died? Because if you bow the knee to Jesus Christ before you die, that means that you're going to live for all of eternity. But if you stay in your pride, unwilling to submit, unwilling to humble yourself, not only will you have to bow your knee and confess with your tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, but then you'll spend eternity with Satan. Because Satan is unwilling to bow his knee. Satan is unwilling to humble himself and say, Jesus, you truly are Lord. So the first judgment of God is going to be on our salvation. Are we bowing now or are we going to bow later? Something else God is going to judge each and every one of us on is our words. Our speech. If you don't believe me, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. This is always something that's so convicting. If you're feeling great about yourself and your Christianity, just remind yourself every single word is going to get judged. Every single thing we say. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. Again, the context here is knowing the difference between a good tree and a bad tree. And Jesus tells us the way you know a good tree versus a bad tree is by the fruit of that tree. And then he goes on to tell us in chapter 12, verse 36 of Matthew, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, what's our speech like? What are we talking about? How are we acting? Are we acting like this world or has our speech been owned by Jesus Christ and we're renewed? We are a new creation. The old things are gone. The new things have come. So God will judge us on our salvation. He's going to judge us on our words. And finally, he's going to judge us based on our actions. Salvation, our words, and actions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul starts off by saying, hey, there's no other foundation that anyone can lay besides Jesus Christ. So our actions being judged, it doesn't make us lose salvation or not. Our foundation is found and locked into Jesus Christ. However, verse 12 tells us if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, that's one option on what we can build on top of this cornerstone of Jesus Christ in our lives. The other option is to build hay, wood, and straw. But each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he's built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Again, what is this going to be like? Our whole life's work, right? 40 years of life, 60 years of life, 80 years of life. God forbid, 120 years of life, right? All of it brought before Jesus Christ and he's going to look at it and it's going to be tested with fire. I don't know when was the last time you had a, a big test or a big project at school, right? And it's nine weeks for this 
paper or six months or a year. Some of the young adults are getting their master's or their doctorate and they got to create this huge paper, a year's worth of work. Imagine turning it in and the teacher saying, you got a 30, man. That's terrible. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. A whole year worth of my life and it's a 30. It's terrible. Imagine your whole life's work consumed in an instant because nothing was done for Jesus Christ. Or the things that were done for Jesus Christ were all out of your own pride and selfish ambition. The things that were done for Christ were really done out of heart of worship to the Lord. Those things were done to get the applause and approval of man. Again, it's something we should consider. My works are going to be judged. And it's not going to be based on how much I bring to the table. It's going to be judged on how much is left on the table. How much was actually done for Jesus Christ and worship unto his name. Last thing that the angel tells us here, back to Revelation 14, is to worship him who made everything. Worship him who made everything. And we see the attack on this plain truth that God has created everything. We see this attack Every single day within our public schools, every single day within social media, every single day, this rise of the nonsense of evolution. They do it so that we know, hey, there's no one to give an account to. No one really created anything. There's just a big explosion. There was this ooze and lightning hit it and boom, all this stuff started happening, right? We know it's nonsense. Professing to be wise, they become fools, If explosions created life, every 4th of July, there'd be life pouring down everywhere, right? All over the U.S., there'd be new life on all these fireworks explosions. Disney World, there'd be life pouring out every single night from the fireworks show. It is complete nonsense. And we need to turn away from these things to turn to worship Him who made everything. In Acts 14, verse 15, Paul and Barnabas are there. They call, they're calling them Zeus and Hermes. And they tell the men, they say, hey, we're men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven, earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Again, we need to come to the truth And the reality that God has created everything that we see out there. Everything in this world. The spiritual realm. Heaven, earth, the seas. He's created all of it. It's simple, right? The gospel's simple. God has created everything. You go out to a beach. You watch the sunrise. You watch the sunset. There's no arguing that there's a God and a creator out there. But if there's a God and a creator out there, he has the right to judge us. He has the right to say, hey, are you following the manual I gave you? Are you doing your whole point of being here on earth? Are you fulfilling your mission? But in this God who's created everything, he's created you and I, he's put the very breath in our lungs. In the midst of all that, we raised our pride against him. We've, tell, we've been telling him that he's wrong, his design is wrong, that we don't need him, that if we just join together, we can rise and be even greater than he is. And yet he loves us so much. He didn't just destroy us in an instant. He didn't just fry us and make us crispy critters and turn the page and create a new humanity. He loves us so much that he sends his only son, Jesus, who's in the same likeness as him and possesses all of the same power as him. And he sends him to save us and bring us back into a relationship with him. And how did we treat him? How did we treat this token of love? We killed him. We put him to death on the cross. The only son that he sends to save us and to bring us back into this relationship with him, we brutally beat and murdered. But Jesus, living a perfect life and being so powerful that he's able to rise from the dead, now gives us a way to have a relationship with God once again. And this is the gospel. All it takes is that we believe That we believe, hey, I have sinned against God. That we believe Jesus is the Son of God. And that we believe Jesus has taken my place of eternal wrath for the sins that I deserve. That's all it takes. The gospel is simple, but we attack it. Our world, they start gritting their teeth against it. They start foaming at the mouth against it. But it is so simple. 
And this angel, he preaches the gospel, and it's all based on there is a creator of heaven and earth, and he's going to judge all of humanity one day. Where will you fall? Where's your salvation attached to? Back to Revelation 14, verse 8, it tells us now another angel follows up, and he says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The second angel, he follows up the gospel presentation with a simple statement. He says, Babylon is fallen. And Revelation 17, we'll go deeper into what Babylon really is, but scripturally, we see the city of Babylon as an actual city. It all starts off with the Tower of Babel. They create this tower, right, this place of worship. They think they could rise up like God, and their God, he gives them different languages, and they're spread out. But a city is created there later on known as Babylon. One day would have a leader by the name of Nimrod. I don't know how many Nimrods you know today, right? Not like Nimrods, like dummies, but people with actual name, Nimrod. But spiritually, it represents man's joint rebellion against God. It's man's thinking that if all of us could just come together, somehow we could reach the same level as God. And we have to be careful because sometimes this creeps into our minds. This creeps into our hearts as believers. Depending what field you work in, we need to always be mindful that Jesus Christ is the only one that can save humanity. Sometimes there's people in the medical field and they lose focus. Oh, man, if all the doctors would just get right, if we could fix healthcare, the whole world would be saved. Right? Psychologists, if everybody's mind could just get right, the whole world would be saved. If this would just get fixed, the whole world would be saved. Oh, if the politicians would just get their act together, the whole world would be saved. Not so. We know better. Jesus Christ is the only hope for this world. But Babylon, one day, it will fall once and for all. This one world idea, even today, right? This whole one world idea, global economy, global mindset, global leader. This one man, this man, this one world idea, if we could get all of our science together, if we could just start loving each other and stop hating each other, we can create this utopia. That's the mindset in this world. And this mentality gets all the nations drunk on the wrath of her fornication. The fornication here is a spiritual fornication, speaking of worshiping other gods and false idols. How Paul, he desired to present the church to Christ as a virgin, right? Not messing around with other gods or false idols. However, we know that when people are given into other religions, when people are given to other idols... Nine times out of ten, it usually leads to sexual fornication as well. Right? Even these past two weeks, the outrage against limiting abortion in our nation, the outrage of just putting the power back in the state, it's insane. And the majority of our nation thinks that abstinence is just insane. Who would ever practice that? Who would be able to do that? It's insane. It's impossible. That's the world we're living in. And how could you blame them? How many Christians today believe that it's not possible to practice abstinence? How many Christians today that to not partake in pornography or masturbation or any type of sexual sin, many Christians think that's impossible. Many Christians today think that, that oh, you're just trying to be holier than thou or what cult have you joined, right? We've bought into this. And the warning, the question we have to ask ourselves is, have we been drinking the wine of Babylon? Is this what we've been drinking? Is this what we've been feeding on? That now the ideas of the world, that somehow the world can rise up and we can save ourselves. The ideas of being drunk on fornication. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a this and a that, and I dabble in these things, right? Have we been drunk on the wine of Babylon? Or are we drinking of the living water that will leave us never thirsting again? What are you feeding on? Are you feeding on the word of God? Are you allowing God's word to wash you like we read in Ephesians? Or are you drinking the garbage of the world around us? Again, John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus says unto her, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst again. And see, here's the main problem with the wine of Babylon. It never fulfills. You're always thirsty for more. 
It, in fact, it creates a greater desire. Now you need more of it to get the same buzz, to get the same feeling. But if we're partaking of God and his word, it's the only thing that fulfills us. It's the only thing that can quench our spiritual thirst. We have to be careful. Are we drinking the wine of Babylon? Are my morals more aligned with this world or more aligned with the word of God? What I'm watching on TV, what I'm listening to, what I'm watching on social media, what I'm feeding my life, what I'm allowing in my home. Is it the wine of Babylon or is it the everlasting water of Jesus Christ? Finally, verse 9, the third angel follows him up and he says with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And once again here, we just come to the grace and mercy of God. The complete grace and mercy of God. In the midst of all the world's pressures to worship the Antichrist. In the midst of all the world's pressure to bow down to his image. In the midst of all the world's pressure to take the mark. There's no way I could buy. There's no way I can sell without it. God will have an angel over the earth warning all of mankind to not take the mark of the beast. And again, imagine the pressure. The whole world. All the Christians are gone and just the pressure. The whole world is going to buy into this. Again, even within the last two years, right? Many of us, we had never even heard of what coronavirus is, right? And how quickly our language changed. How quickly our mindset changed. How everybody's saying six feet. We need lines on the floor of the grocery stores, right? We got to go in this way. We got to go that way. We need masks. We need this. We need that. And how quickly everything evolved and changed in an instant. That's going to look like child's play compared to the Antichrist and how the whole world is going to buy into it. He's our only savior. He's our only fix. We need the mark. We need this. Everybody's going to be preaching it. And yet there, in spite of what the Antichrist wants, in spite of what he desires, there will be an angel warning all of mankind, don't do it. Don't do it. Again, they're without excuse. When we taught Revelation in youth group many years ago, we just end every chapter by saying, if you're still here, don't take the mark of the beast, right? If you're still here, don't take the mark of the beast. And then just a warning here of what hell is really like. Some people say, oh, hell's going to be great. It's just going to be a party. It'll be hot. I'll have beers and play poker with my friends, right? Not the case, right? The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Again, we won't have time. We'll look at this next week. Worship team, you can come up. Uh, pastors, you can get ready. But, man, just some questions as we leave here, right? Do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you respect God in your life? Do you have honor to God in your life? Does your respect and your honor attach and connected with your love for the Lord? Or have you just bought into this lie of this just sloppy love, right? God, you're cool if I love you and I love this sin and I love this idol and I like this other false thing. That's not the way God works. We have to have the fear of the Lord so that we can truly love the Lord. Right? Simple question, are we saved? Do you have a true relationship with Jesus Christ? My name's not going to get you into heaven. A church attendance at Calvary Chapel, Miami, that's not what's going to get you into heaven. You served here. You went on this mission trip there. That's not what's going to get you into heaven. It's having a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And finally, just what have you been feeding on lately? What have you been feeding on? How much of the Bible are you reading? How many Bible studies are you listening to? Are you feeding on the eternal water from heaven? Or are you feeding on the wine from Babylon. It's going to show in your actions. It's going to show in your speech. It's going to show on what your family thinks about where you're at right now. But hey, let's all stand. We'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. And know that if you're saved, there's no condemnation. 
Jesus isn't here to condemn you, but Jesus is here to bring you back to him so that we can get right into fellowship with him. So we can leave those sins behind and get back into fellowship with him. And if you're not saved here and you have a little bit of conviction, know that if you come to Christ, he will wash you. He'll make you white as snow. Those sins, all of that guilt, all of that condemnation, he'll take it off of you and cast it into the middle of the sea. So again, if you have any questions, if you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. But Lord, we just love you, God. And we we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you how you show us your grace and mercy over and over and over again, God. And Lord, I just pray, if you've shown us any grace and mercy this week, Lord, may, may it not go to waste, Lord. May it not be in vain. Lord, if we've been convicted at all, if we've been encouraged, Lord, if we know we need to seek repentance for something, God, help us to be quick to repent. Help us to be quick to obey. Lord, may we not just allow time to go by so the the sting of the conviction just goes away, Lord. May we realize there's no repentance there. There's no restoration there. There's no getting right with you there, Lord. The only way we can get right with you is to confess our sins before you, Lord. It's to say, God, I'm sorry. Your word is true. I was wrong. Lord, help us to be quick to repent. Help us to just have such a desire to be close to you in this amazing relationship that we get to partake of, God. So, Lord, minister to us, God. Help us to minister to others. Lord, give us a boldness to share the gospel, God. Help us to stop being just fueled by fear, Lord, making our every decision based on fear, Lord. Help us to be filled with you, Holy Spirit, and to make our decisions based on you. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.